Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. With threats to our nation waiting around every corner, adaptability is more important than ever. When conditions change without notice, quick strategic thinking is crucial. And with obstacles consistently impending, determination is essential in overcoming them. It's this willingness, decisiveness, and resilience that sets Marines apart. With our fighting spirit, we don't just fight battles, we win them. Marines are the constant our nation counts on to fight the unknown. And through adaptable problem solving, we do just that. Learn more at Marines.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hello, welcome to the Snooker Scene Podcast. I'm Dave Hendon. This week I had a chat with Andy Goldstein. He presents Snooker on Eurosport. He also presents the Sports Bar on Talk Sport. He also went to school with a young lad who went on to become a very, very, very famous snooker player. I had a chat with Andy about life in snooker, his career as a presenter, and what it's like to be Jimmy White's babysitter. Andy, when did you first discover snooker? Can you remember coming across the sport for the first time? I can, yeah. I remember watching um, the 1984 final of the World Championships between Davis and Jimmy. Um, I would have been um, 10 years old. And um, I didn't have a clue what I was watching, but um, I sort of felt drawn to it because of just how Jimmy played the game. And uh, even though he lost... And he played brilliant in that final. Even though he lost, I remember crying <laughs> because the fact that uh, all of a sudden my newfound hero wasn't champion of the world. And from that moment on, I was hooked. Yeah, not the last tears following Jimmy. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's it's been a very bumpy ride being a Jimmy White fan and very frustrating at times for so many reasons. But um, I wouldn't have had it any other way. There's no other player, I think, that has done for the game what Jimmy's done. You know, I know, I know Higgins before and Ronnie after. And, of course, you know what Ronnie's achieved far outweighs anything Jimmy's done. But um, I just think in the era in which Jimmy done it, no one else had hit balls like he'd hit. No one else had had the flair that he had. He, he didn't really copy anyone apart from Higgins, but I thought he, personally he took it to another level. So um, that's why I'll always be Jimmy. Mm. And we were talking in the bar last night, you, your first match that you saw live was a couple of real legends at the Masters. Yeah, that was uh, in 1987 at the Masters at the Conference Centre. Cliff Thorburn against Willie Thorne. I think it's out on DVD now. That <laughs> uh, 5-3 Cliff Thorburn won it. And... Um, I actually, my dad took me um, and I bunked off school to go and see it and I remember right early on, I think it was Alan Hughes was the, the MC and he said just before the players came out, um, we've got a few empty seats um, if you want to come down and I ran to the front two, right in front, like just behind where the trophy would be and after the first frame my dad realised that we were on telly mm. and we had to move back in case one of the teachers saw me. <laughs> but um, it was great, I was hooked, you know, it's, it's quite bizarre Dave because we're very lucky in our jobs that you know I'm sitting to you, talking to you in the commentary box, and we're looking out at the the table for the final. And I still get the same buzz now, 
it's very bizarre, but looking at an inanimate object in front of us, which is like any other snooker table, but it just feels different because it's the one they play the final on. And I got exactly the same buzz when I was, um, how old were I in 87? 14 at the Masters. And I just stood there. I've still got pictures of me next to this empty snooker table. It was great. I loved it. It's, that's right. It's a very different experience going to a tournament than watching it on TV. It's a lot rawer, particularly the Wembley Conference Centre in the 80s. It'd be people smoking, quite a rowdy place, really. Yeah, and I, I couldn't work. The one thing that struck me, actually, was... Um, so, people listening to this might not know, but the snooker table that the players play on is completely utterly different to any play you, uh, any any table you play on in your club. It's um, so much faster. It's like ice compared to the ones in your club. They're a lot heavier. The cloths are thicker. The balls are sometimes heavier. And what what I couldn't believe the first time I saw two professionals play is just how lightly they hit the the cue ball. Because I'm used to thumping it and trying to get the white, you know, from the blue area down to the yellow. You got to really give it away. They just tapped it. And that I could not believe just how how much they don't have to do with the cue ball, and um, yeah, I mean I, it was it was probably about a seven hour match knowing those two, but I could have stayed there for seventeen hours. It was brilliant. Mm. But of course, unbeknownst to you, there was a snooker player in your school, wasn't there? A very who turned out to be a very famous. One. Yes. Um, so the story goes that uh, when I was about fourteen, I was head and shoulders above everyone else when it came to playing snooker, and then um, this little pipsqueak called Ronnie O'Sullivan who was 12, um, so I would have been 14, said, uh, I'll take you on. And I was like, okay. And I went to his house. He lived in the road next to me. And I knocked on his door on a Saturday morning with my cue case in hand. And uh, his dad answered the door. And he looked down at me because I was only, however tall I was, four foot. And I looked up at his dad. And his dad went, what do you want? <laughs> and I went, he's Ronnie. And he went, yeah. And I said, I'll, I'm, I'm here to play him. And he went, how much? And I, I thought, <laughs> what? And I went, oh no, pound? And he went, 50 quid, or you can leave, and I've toned that down. Yes, yeah, yeah. And I went, ah, oh, and he just slammed the door in my face. <laughs> and um, I didn't play him that day, but then I, when I did play him up at Ilford Snooker Club for the first time, because that's where we both used to go, I just could not believe. In fact, up until that moment, I always dreamt of being a snooker pro, and as soon as I saw him play, I could not believe how good someone can be so young. It was utterly frightening. But it's significant, he's, he's 12 and you're 14, because when you're like in your 40s, two years between you is nothing. But at that age, someone who's 12, if you're 14, they beat you. It's quite a sobering experience, isn't it? Yeah, uh, well, it's not just beat, you hammered me. I yeah. mean, my highest break at 14 would have been maybe 40 or 50 on a great day. He was knocking, you know, tons as if, if it was going out of fashion. There was, there's one story I've told a few times, but it just sums up what kind of kid he was where on table two at Ilford Snooker Club, which was the middle table, um, he was on 15 reds, 15 blacks, as a teenager, as a 14 or 15 year old. He did yellow, green, round, blue, pink, and on the black, he was plum on the black, and on the black, started taking out the balls. This was against me. Everyone, everyone at the club, there was the bar just to the left, everyone was watching, and he started taking out the balls. And it would, would have been the first maximum I'd ever seen. And I looked at him and said, are you not gonna pop the black? And with, without sounding flash, but in just a matter of fact kind of way, he just looked at me and went, well, I'm not going to miss that. <laughs> and I just could not believe it. But that's the difference, isn't it? Because like most people, would, they dream of making a maximum. That's what they go to bed at night if you're a snooker player, particularly yeah. young, dream of doing it. He just knows he can, so why bother? Yeah, it just just the way he controls that cue ball. You know, bizarrely, actually, I was talking to Ronnie, um, when was it? I think it was yesterday afternoon, about the days we used to play up at Ilford. Uh, and then we were talking about when he went to that qualifier and won, you'll know this, is it 38 matches on mm. the spin? And I said, how would you compare your form then as a kid to how it is now? And he said, I was probably better then mm. than I am now. And I know that sounds bizarre, but he was so fresh and he, yeah. he just had 
um, there was no negative thoughts in his mind whatsoever. And I know if you're listening to this thinking there's no way you can get a better Ronnie than the one we see today. But in a strange kind of way, it was. It was just fearless snooker he used to play. So tell us about Ilford Snooker Centre, because that's quite a legendary snooker club in sort of snooker history, isn't it? Yeah, so when I went there um, for one birthday, the, um, the resident pro there was Eugene Hughes, yeah. and for one birthday my mum got me um, three lessons with him. Um, and that was really my introduction to Ilford Snooker Club. And then they had they had great players there, apart from Ronnie. Uh, Ken Doherty was the club pro there. Oh. But they had players that a lot of you wouldn't have heard of that were still just head and shoulders above me. There was Nick Terry, of mm. course, uh, ex-snooker professional. There was a player called Billy Elf, who used to play knocking regular tons. Mark King played up there. Um, people like Stuart Reardon, and Stuart Parnell. These are all really, really top-class amateurs that I would have given my right arm to be at their kind of level, and even they didn't make it. Um, um, and it was just it was just a great place to go. You know, people would go up there. We, we talked about this, actually, all week. We've been talking to various players after they've won on the couch about how that doesn't really exist anymore, the fact that you can go up to a club at 10 o'clock in the morning with your queue, you can be there until 10 o'clock at night, you won't arrange anything, but when you'll get there, there'll be six or seven people to have a best of five. You'll have a bit of food, a bit of kaluki as well, the telly will be on. You'll have a laugh. You know, it's it's like that dressing room feeling. Mm. And um, it was great. You know, I, I, I couldn't get anywhere near the standard of play with those, but you were sort of accepted into the mm. Ilford Snooker Club family. It was fantastic. Mm. And quite a few of the barmaids were very attractive as well. So <laughs> as a teenager going up there, yeah. you know, it was uh, that was another reason why. Well, I was going to say that because in, in that era, it was still, snooker clubs were still associated as being sort of smoky and a little bit dodgy in a way. A few ne'er-do-wells coming into yeah. characters. Was there no sort of concern from your family, maybe spending a bit too much time there? Uh, no, they were just pleased to get rid of me. <laughs> um, no, because um, they they knew I loved the sport. Mm. And in fact, upstairs at Ilford Snooker Club, they um, halfway through my time there, so maybe when I was about 19, <coughs> because it started becoming popular, they changed upstairs into uh, nine-ball pool tables. And um, I thought I'd give it a go. And on the first night I went up there, there was a competition, and I, I won that. And I thought, OK, maybe I'm more of a nine-ball pool player. So then I continued playing nine-ball. And... Um, I got to, I think, about 32 in the country playing. I played on the tour and I played in the World Championships, um, but sadly never got higher than 32. So um, they knew I enjoyed it. They knew if I was successful, you know, I could make a few quid, not a lot of money, mm. but also, you know, being at Ilford Snooker Club meant I wasn't in the pub and yes. I wasn't doing anything else that's yeah. dodgy or naughty. So they were quite pleased for me yeah. to go up there. But you accepted seeing Ronnie, seeing Ken and the others, OK, I can play to a good standard, but I'm not going to be a professional. Have you accepted that yet, Andy? Or? No. Do you, know, do you know what? I still sometimes think I could do a job out there. I know, I know, Dave. I know it sounds crazy. But there will be times where I... OK, so sometimes here I'll practice with Jimmy on, yeah. on the practice table when we've got a bit of downtime, right? And he'll absolutely hammer me. He gives me 70 star and we play for a couple of quid, best of threes, right? And if I'm lucky, I'll take a frame off him right, with a 70 star. But there are times sometimes if I'm practising on my own, I'm thinking, do you know, if I play this well against Jimmy, I could beat him off level. It's <laughs> maybe I don't know. Maybe it's just the dreamer in me. But mm. yeah, you very kindly voiced. We did a gag on Eurosport yeah. where you voiced me dreaming that I'd become. I can't remember what if it was Scottish Open champion or whatever. 
But um, when I saw that, it was like a okay, another box tick. That that's what it would sound like with Dave Hendon commentating. Right? Well, I think it was the I think it was the World Championship because I think I have to say they'll have to scrape Stephen Hendry's name off it. It yes. seemed you know a little bit over the top in some ways. <laughs> no, but... <laughs> Dave, you, you said it from the heart. I know I know that's what you meant deep down. <laughs> okay, so you didn't become a professional snooker player, but you you know you went into broadcasting. So where did the interest start with that, and what was your sort of path in? Because there's no I think people they quite often ask maybe yourself and, and me how do you get into broadcasting, but there's actually no one way into it. Is there? No, mine was incredibly late um, I was 29 when I got into it uh, I always wanted to be uh, a presenter and this was before everyone wanted to be mm. a presenter before people saw Big Brother as a way to be famous and um, I left school and I became an office junior and went my way up to be an office manager in a publishing company and um, for one reason or another um, I went to various jobs and things didn't work out and I found myself to earn a few quid in the post room at Channel 5 uh, sorry Channel 4 um, and I was there just um, as a, a temp for two weeks. And while I was there, I was in a, a club near where I live and I bumped into an old girlfriend from school. And she said, what do you do now? And I said, I work at Channel 4. And she said, I was a presenter. Hmm. And I went, yeah, that's what, that's what I do. And that was the light bulb moment where I thought, actually, maybe I'm in the building for a reason. Hmm. And then on the Monday, I went to see Andy Peters, the TV presenter who at the time was head of T4. and said, this is what I want to do. And he told me I needed to make a show reel. And um, from Channel 4, I borrowed um, lots of videotapes, lots of jiffy bags, um, the editing suite, and I made my own show reel. And then I would come in to work with a um, sports bag of videos to send out and put them illegally through the Franken machine, about 200, <laughs> 300, mm. and sent it off to very pro various production houses and eventually got a bite. And um, I got into snooker through when I was doing the all sports show on the Soccer Am all sports show on a Friday for for Sky Sports, uh, they realised my love of snooker and they asked me to do the Moscone Cup out in Vegas and I did that and of course at the time Sky had the Premier League mm. snooker and then um, the other people that did I think the wonderful Dave Clark used yeah. to do it but then it became too much for him when darts was introduced and they asked me if I wanted to do it and I just jumped in and I'll, I'll never forget so the first time I did it. Jimmy was playing and at that time I didn't know him and he was still my idol and he, well he still is my idol and he's still God but I didn't know him and um, I went into um, a changing room to put my suit on and about five minutes in there was a knock at the door and the door opened and it was Jimmy and he was like oh how are you and I was like alright nice to meet you I'm Andy I'm presenting alright do you mind if I change and I was like no and it was just me and him in there and after about ten minutes I remember thinking oh my god I'm in a room on my own with my idol and he's in his pants <laughs> it's very bizarre <laughs> yeah I mean it's a big deal to suddenly be presenting live sport particularly a sport you've grown up idolising and watching yeah. but also you know it's a lot of pressure because I remember the Premier League you would present it in the arena wouldn't you there was no sort of studio off you'd be out there all the crowd are there um, you know and, and because you're relatively new to it you've got to do it well you have yes and I didn't <laughs> um, I, th that's where I learned to cut my cloth it was um there were, it, I think when the Premier League went out, even though it was on Sky, it was just a little bit before people realised what they could do with with um, pressing the, the button stop, rewind, yeah. and then play again and video it and put it on social media. Yeah. So um, the mistakes that I made, sadly, hopefully are buried deep, deep in the Sky Sports vault. <coughs> but listen, that's, we, all, we all make mistakes. I still make them today. You don't make any because <laughs> you're up there with the best of them. But that's how you learn, you know. Yeah. And the, I, th I think the advantage I've got in the snooker world is that I still play the game. You know, my, my high break's 97. <laughs> but um, all the players know that I can play mm -hmm. and they all know that I've got a history 
with it and they all know what I'm talking that they they know what I'm talking about is from years and years of being a fan not just turning up on the day and doing my research and notes so I think I get that respect from them and and that helps as well because they know that when I'm talking to them you know they know I'm talking as a fan and a presenter as well yeah. I was going to ask you like how you found sort of walking into it and getting on with the players because if you are a fan and there'll be people who are snooker fans listening to this the idea of meeting you know a Stephen Hendry a Steve Davis they would oh, be nervous wouldn't know what to say but actually what I've found I'm sure you've found the same thing is they're incredibly down to earth people even the stars don't act like stars no um, I still get nervous sometimes you know I'm, I'm really good friends with with quite a few of them now um, uh, how, well, that's a good question um, you just get used to it they just I mean if you're the, the difference is when you see snooker on the telly we haven't just turned up five minutes sure. before they've played the game and then we all go home you know in the morning we're here rehearsing we're relaxing we're all in the players lounge so you're socialising with these people and then at the end of the night we go back to the hotel and we go to the bar and we have a drink and then so you're you're in each other's pockets so that's that's how you become friends anyway in any industry so um it, it's just something that happens naturally but um i still you know i'm, I'm really good pals with stephen and um Sometimes he'll phone me and I'll be like, oh, Stephen Hendry's calling, you know. <laughs> Not to that extent, but it's, you know, Hendry's like an absolute legend. Mm. So I suppose, you know, Jimmy tells me he's got mates with, with like Ronnie Wood, for argument's sake, and he'll sometimes go, Ronnie Wood's calling, you know. It's, I think it's great. It's yeah. nice to still put these people on a pedestal because they deserve it sure. because of what they've done for the sport. Sure. So let's talk a bit about your job as a presenter. We're here, you're, you're presenting for Eurosport, of course, at the Scottish Open this week. Um, you talk about social media everyone's got their opinions about presenters and all, and I think a lot of people think I could do that but they have no idea at all oh, they could do. what's involved because they may see that earpiece in your ear but they've got no idea the sort of stuff that's been said down it obviously you're listening to producer director they're, they're asking you to, to throw to VT packages and or ask a particular question or look this way look that way can you just explain what that's like and how long it sort of took to get used to that I still haven't got used to it <laughs> um but what the, are you hearing? What are you actually hearing in your so, ear? So all the time I'm on air, um, I've got what's called open talkback. So uh, in my ear will be um, everything that's happening in the gallery. And the gallery is where the producer, the director and everyone else sits. So the reason we have it on open talkback is because if I'm, for instance, linking to a VT, and as I'm just about to do it, I can hear someone in the gallery shout out, oh, we haven't got the VT yet. I know that I don't link to it. You know, it's those sort of things rather than just be told, don't link to it. Mm. And then it, mm. you mess up as a as a presenter. So I've got all that going on at the time. Um, you also have what we call hard counts, so you've got to get in and out of VTs and breaks when someone in your ear is counting five, four, three, and you've got to hit that mark. But again, that's something that comes with experience of telly and also radio, you know, you do that a lot in radio. Um, and um, you'll have also, we had it this week, which I absolutely love. So we have a running order of the, <coughs> the, the, the day, and it will say, you know, like, um, 30 seconds on, on opener and that's where you would say big match today you've got X, V, Y and then it would say Envision three minute chat about Ronnie um, two minute back, uh, chat about Sean Murphy go into VT about Sean Murphy interview, and that sort of thing mm. but I can't remember what day it was this week but for some reason oh one match finished way too early and the two players that were meant to be on the match table next hadn't even turned up so we had to fill for yeah, yeah, 25 yeah. minutes yeah. Uh, and we had a great chat mm. and obviously no one has got anything prepared there's no VTs ready to play um, so in your ear it's just you've got 20 minutes to, to, to fill mm. um, and I think that's that it helps massively that I've got a, a massive love for snooker mm. and you know if I can't fill with Jimmy White Neil Folds and Ronnie O'Sullivan on the couch mm. for 20 minutes talking about 
snooker, then I shouldn't really be doing the job. Mm. Um, but it's those sort of things. You are literally flying by the seat of your pants for the whole time. But that's why I love live telly. We do um, highlights links mm. um, for, um, obviously, every day in the evening. I think it's on Quest you have highlights for the day's snooker from before. And those links are pre-recorded. So while the evening session is on, I'll move into the practice room. And I'll have to say, you know, welcome to Quest. Here are the highlights from... The that takes me six or seven times to get it right. <laughs> and if it's live, I'll get it in one. And I hate doing pre It's very bizarre, mm. but I think subconsciously my brain is thinking, oh, you can muck this up, it's mm. fine. But um, I absolutely love doing live broadcasting. Mm. It's, it's good fun. And, and listen, the amount of fun I have on that couch with Jimmy and Ronnie and Neil, I'm very lucky. I'm not just saying this because I'm here now with you in the box at your sport, but out of all the companies I work for, to sit with those two on you it's a fantastic fun it mm. we're very lucky it's not really a job i just get paid to do what i love sure but what also you saw it saying about so you filled about 20 minutes but yeah then after the match we normally get the winner of the match comes in and i guess it's your job to sense what sort of mood they're in because they're not always buzzing that they've won sometimes i mean john higgins we've had in there before and he's sort of down in the depths of despair yeah and it's your job to to sort of judge that and work out, I guess, the best way to get out of them what you feel they, they yeah. want to say. Yeah, sometimes the best question can be why. Mm. I know that sounds bizarre, but um, you shouldn't... You should, I, for years, I would never just... If someone says, you know, I'm not really feeling it at the moment, if you just go, why? Mm. You know, then you just let them talk. I think it takes a long time for, I think, from the presenters that I look up to. Um, you learn from them that less is more. You know, it's it's not about me, it's not about... Hazel Irvine, who I think is a fantastic presenter. It's just about um, the subject on the couch. And, um, yeah, you, you do have to judge it. Listen, we're lucky that it's a sport and we get the winners on the couch. So yeah. nine times out of ten, yeah. they're going to be pretty happy. Yeah. But, um, yeah, there are some questions that I, I, I once with... Ryan Day it was, came on the couch. And I thought he didn't play a great game of snooker. I thought it was a bit boggy. The match wasn't that great to watch. And I think my first question to him, this is about two years ago, was uh, not the best game of snooker, but you got through. And then he was like, no, I thought I played really well. Mm. And I was like, <laughs> And, you know, there's a very fine line between me wanting to say to him, what are you talking about? That was garbage. And me going, no, no, you, actually, you are 100% right. You know, that's your view. You played in it. I didn't. Who am I to? Mm. So, yeah, you have got to judge it. But as I say, I'm, you know, nine times out of ten, the people that sit on the couch have just won. Mm. So... If they're not, maybe I'll say it. What's the matter with you? Just one. <laughs> the other thing I think it's important to say that I think people may not realise is there's no auto cue. You know, I think people assume you're just reading when you come on and and and, and sort of sign off the program. You're reading the script. You're not, are you? And you're having to judge the count in your ear and whatever else is being said. Yeah. You know, that takes quite a lot of getting used to. It. Yeah, I've worked with auto cue and it's horrible mm. because I can't read. <laughs> For years, when I was doing soccer aim, the whole show. When you've got like a magazine show, usually it's auto-queued because it's link, 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 link. And the whole show was auto-queued. And um, I used to do the Friday night show for four years and then the Saturday show for a year. And when I started on the Saturday show, so I've done four years, I kept I kept just mucking up on the auto-queue, like just stumbling on words. And then one day a, a new woman come in who controls the auto-queue from the gallery, who makes you go up as you're reading it. And she said, why is it all in block caps? And I was like, what do you mean? And she went, autocue should be... And I was like, well, how, why? What difference does it make? And she said, because your brain will subconsciously see the shape of the word before you say it. I was like, all right, why has no one ever told me that in four years? <laughs> and it's just little things like that, you know, but I I hate... Yeah, I, I much prefer ad-libbing because then that way I can't go wrong. Yeah, yeah. Because yeah. They're, they're my words that are coming out of my mouth. So I'll say, yeah, I was going to say that. I was meant to say. <laughs> but... um 
Yeah, listen, it's it's a difficult job, but it's like anything. You know, my mate's um, my mate's an electrician. I can't do that. My mate works in a bank. I couldn't do that. So it's, mm. I can't do what you. Actually, I probably could do what you. <laughs> anyone could do this. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Well, well, one thing that I think not everyone could do is try and keep. You know, Ronnie and Jimmy are big characters, they're, mm. and they're not necessarily media trained. Particularly Jimmy, I think. <laughs> I think you know you, when you do the, the table um, demonstrations and so on, it's kind of propulsive viewing because you're not quite sure what's going to happen. And, and we would do one today where Jimmy was playing the masse shot and he had his jacket on. It was really, really difficult. Yeah. But. You know, you've come from being a kid idolising Jimmy to now trying to marshal him basically on air. What's, what's I, that? Like? I know he's babysitter. <laughs> uh, yeah, it can be frantic sometimes. Um, I think it's bizarre. I don't know what you think though, but I think I get a different Jimmy at that mid-session when Ron is there and when he's not. Mm. And I don't know if it's because when Ron is there and he's he's trying to recreate a shot, he feels a little bit more pressure because mm. you know he he. He looks up to Ronnie as well, you know. He appreciates just you know how much of a fantastic player he is, and he wants to perform his best. Where I think when he's with just me and Neil, he knows he can have a laugh. Um, but either way, it's um, it's great. I mean, it's it's what a lot of people don't see is when we're in that break, going to it or also leaving it, they then keep practicing yeah. it. You know, the Masso shot you talked about today. Ronnie just wouldn't put the cue down. He's trying and trying and trying, and then and then Jimmy's standing next to him, and Jimmy's telling Ronnie how to hit the cue ball. And Ronnie's having it a go, and then they change, and Jimmy takes his jacket off. You know, they're the things you don't see. Mm. Um, but I like the fact that Jimmy isn't media trained, mm. and I like the fact he doesn't know where the cameras are. <laughs> no, genuinely, I think it's funnier. You know, as a snook, I always think as a snooker fan, what would I like to see? Mm. And I like the rawness of that. I want to see Jimmy get in the way because. It's compulsive viewing, you know. It's one of those things where the mid-session interval is usually the place to go and make a cup of tea. Mm. But I would like to think, because of that mayhem and chaos, it's the place where you go, actually, I might make the cup of tea when the next frame starts. Mm. And also, we've all seen pundits in, in various sports who are very measured and, and they say kind of quite bland things. Those two, particularly Jimmy, they say... The, they, well, I mean, Jimmy doesn't even know he's on air off the time, but yeah. they say the same things when the cameras are off, yes. when they're on. They're themselves, which is what you want when you've got big personalities yeah and, and also Jimmy will say things that um, just leave his mind and come out of his mouth you know he you're right there are other organisations I won't name them <laughs> but are, are quite stiff <laughs> when when they broadcast and maybe that's the old way the old school of, of how snooker I think was and I grew up with but I think that um, the snooker fan now is a lot more laid back a lot more casual likes a bit of fun I hate the word but I'll say it likes a bit of banter <laughs> and um they definitely provide it. Mm -hmm. What's changed in the time you've been presenting is social media's come along and people can have connection with you, uh, can have back and forth. That can be good and bad, as we know. Mm -hmm. um, how, I mean, you're quite prolific on Instagram and Twitter. How, how have you found that? It, because inevitably not everyone's going to be a fan and, and not everyone is necessarily... Why? Why did you say that? Why well, you no, not, not what are you talking about? What have you read? Well, no, what I was going to say was not, not everyone is necessarily that stable either. You know? <laughs> okay. But you get all sorts of people. How do you sort of... Do you just take the rough with the smooth or do you just accept it all? I uh, have four people that look after my Instagram account. <laughs> I, you know what? I used to, when I first got onto social media, I used to look at every comment and I used to believe everything that was written and really take it to heart. You can't do that nowadays because nine times out of ten, if people like something, they don't go on social media. And um, if they hate it, they will. Um, I don't use it as much as I used to. I tend now to um, Instagram pictures and put that onto my yeah. Twitter feed. Um, but if, if someone sends something that's nice or they ask a question, I'll happily reply to it. Mm. But um, social media can be a horrible world, you know? 
even if you just say, even if you just tweet a picture of, what did I tweet something the other day? I can't even remember what it was. I can't remember. I tweeted a picture the other day of like my breakfast and someone put, I can't believe you have two eggs. And it's like, just look at the, just don't comment about anything that's negative, you know? So it's just not worth it. But yeah. listen, I, I tweet other people that I don't know. I don't have a problem with people, you know, tweeting. It's absolutely fine. Um, it's a good way to connect. Um, someone tweeted me the other day, going back to what we were saying before about mistakes I used to make on Sky Sports, someone tweeted me the other day, video footage of me making a mistake this week. Not a big one. Nice of them. Yeah, thanks for that, Dave. Um, and I just, I know, I <laughs> and I just replied with like you know the little emoji of the the monkey yeah. with his hands over his face. Yeah. There's something you can do. Yeah. It's I, I don't mind it if yeah. if people feel that there's some kind of connection there. That's cool. Yeah. It's, it's it's when they tweet pictures of them in their pants watching the snooker. Mm. You've got to stop doing that, Dave. Yeah, I was going to say, again, I was bored. Um, but, the, but of course, if you, if you throw football into the mix as well, then yeah. you do get, it can be quite toxic. And that brings us to your yes. talk sports show. You do the sports bar yes. uh, every night. And that's Monday, Thursday from 10pm. Indeed. And that's obviously a lot of football in that. Um, tell us firstly how that came about, that, that show. Uh, so I used to do, um, the first time I went on to talk sport was two euros ago. So when would that have been, Dave? What, where are we now? 2018. 20... So it'd have been 2016, 2012. 2012, yeah. Is that right? Yeah. No, it, was, it would have been. Hold on. I tell you when it was. I first went to Talksport ten years ago because that's when my eldest was born. There you go. I first went to Talksport ten years ago, um, and it was just after I'd got the boot from Soccer AM, and it was a godsend. <clears> it was literally one day there was a phone call saying we're not going to re renew your contract, and the next day saying do you want to come and work for Talksport? I'd never done radio before. It's fantastic. Fantastic. I was probably thrown in the deep end. But I used to do a show that was Saturday and Sunday nights and no one listened to it and we got away with absolute murder. Mm -hmm. um, and then what they used to do on TalkSport, at 10 o'clock, they used to have a guy called Ian Collins who did Current Affairs and then the old director of programmes at TalkSport, a guy called Moz D, suddenly thought, well, we're called TalkSport, but at 10 o'clock we don't talk about sport. We talk about, you know, why are the bins not being collected in Camden or something on a Tuesday? <laughs> and then he just said, do you want to do every night of the week? after the game's finished and it just made complete sense you know 10 o'clock the big game's just finished yeah. you know Mon Monday's Premier League Tuesday Wednesday Champions League Thursday Europe. why is there not a phone in mm. and um, I was like yeah fine great and then for the so that that was seven years ago we started doing that me and Jason Cundy and again it's radio there is absolutely no script with that there is no running order and the great thing about it Dave is there's no prep mm -hmm. as in preparation because we just sit in the office at eight o'clock, we watch the game, whatever it is, Champions League, and then we react to it. Mm. And then we have all of tomorrow's newspapers, the back pages and various guests that come on mm. as well. And I absolutely do it. It's a three hour show mm. and it is fantastic. Yeah. I, I love television, I love radio as much. It's great fun. But what's noticeable as well, you know, you're not it's, you're not the BBC where you have to be balanced and have to be, oh, we're going to hear this side of it and that's You basically say what you want. Yes, I can. <laughs> and some people don't get that. Some people phone up and go, what, uh, why are you so one-sided? Yeah. And I say, because I'm a football fan. Yeah. Um, we've talked many a time about the fact that I'm a United fan, of course, being from London. And um, when, like, Liverpool playing in the Champions League or Chelsea or whoever, well, not Chelsea, they're not, they're not in it this year. Um, <laughs> How, I will say, you know, I don't want Liverpool to win. I don't want. Ch How can you say that? Mm. You're meant to. And I'm like, well, do you want Manchester United to win? Mm. You're a Chelsea fan, do you? And it's that, you know. Mm. Primarily, I am a football fan, and I'm doing a radio show, mm. and I love the fact that I've got complete and utter freedom. Mm. Yeah. Although the first, the first year I was doing it, I did get in trouble, because um, what I didn't realise about radio is people don't sit in front of it like they do with the telly and listen constantly. They dip in and out. 
and um, Jason Cunney, my co-host, couldn't do a show one night, and as a joke, I said, sadly, he can't be here because he died in a freak yachting accident, right? <laughs> this is awful. Yeah. And so people like cabbies, listen or whatever, would just hear Jason Cunney's dive. That's all they hear. Yeah. And it got to a stage that night, it's awful, Dave, it's got, it got to a stage where people started laying reeds outside Stamford Bridge, right? <laughs> and I didn't know, I didn't know Jason that well, and he'd, um, he'd just got over testicular cancer, right? Oh, Again, I didn't know. <laughs> Thankfully, he's fine. It's not getting any better, is it? No, it gets worse. <laughs> so his mum woke up to voice messages of people crying, saying, oh, my God, I'm so sorry to hear about Jason. Wow. Yeah. That wasn't... I remember the director of programs phoned me up, and he goes, everyone's going crazy. The board phoned me up saying, am I going to sack you? What should I tell him? And I went, um, just say, no, I'm not. <laughs> And thankfully he didn't, and I didn't make that mis- mistake again. I suppose one thing, though, is, it, you know, in terms of just your sort of body clock almost, 10 to 1, it's not... Most people would not regard those as working hours. It's not the worst, you know. It mm. does sound a bit crazy. I have all day at home, yeah. um, if I'm not working during the day, but, you know, nine times out of time, I can go to the gym, I can go out for lunch with my wife, I can, you know, play snoop with my pals or play golf or whatever. And then I, I leave for work, I get in... Um, I see the kids, you know, I can pick them up from school. Um, I then get to work at eight. I watch the football. I leave work at one. I'm home by half one in the morning, which is not too bad. Go straight to bed. My wife is up in the morning with the kids. She takes them to school. I'm up about half nine, ten. I've got the whole day again. So it's, if it was a half two finish, something like that, it would be a bit of a killer. But you, I, I don't get used to it. People say I get used to it. I haven't got used to it. I'm still a bit tired, but there's not jet lag in it. I'm just a little bit... In terms of the future, do you have your sort of sight set on any particular sort of further challenges in broadcasting? Um, I'd like to um, present the World Snooker Awards one day again, Dave. <laughs> yeah, well, yeah, you did do that, and uh, it couple was of times. Of, well, yeah, it was kind of for, for people who weren't there. If you think back to when Ricky Gervais did the Golden Globes, that's a compliment. No, yeah, and d- not everyone in that audience was happy with the things he was saying, and I think it was mm. slightly similar in your case. Yes, I'd like to get that back one day, Barry, if you're listening. Yeah. Although my fee will go up. Um, what would I like to do? It's a good question. Um, do you know what? I know it sounds bizarre. Whatever comes along, great, but mm. I'm extremely lucky. I, I do um, all the home nations for Eurosport. We're going to Germany together. We're doing the shootout. For the snooker, I For the say. snooker, yeah. <laughs> Not just going on holiday. No, we're going out. <laughs> oh, I didn't know there was an event there. I thought it was just a hotel romantic weekend. <laughs> Um, I do the radio stuff. I work for yeah. MUTV, so on match days, I'm I'm at Old Trafford. Um, I, I can't, you know, life couldn't be any. It could, financially, it could be. Um, but but I'm you've got to be enthusiastic, haven't you? Because I think again, we know people in the media who act as if like there's a gun to their head. But when you look at it, I mean, it's a great job, isn't it? It it's is. Not a you've job. got to, you've got it's to, yeah. But you've got to be coming and think, oh, I really want to be here because this is good oh, stuff. Oh yeah, without a yeah. doubt. Do you consider it a job? Uh, sometimes depends depends on the match. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, okay, yeah, fair enough. But it's not, is it? As I said before, my mates have got proper jobs, yeah. you know, and even my mates that are, are, are really well off and financially secure for life, they've still they still have crazy jobs. They travel the world, you know. They find it a, a ball ache. Can I say ball ache? You just said it. Okay, you said it twice. They find it a ball ache. Three. <laughs> sometimes you know they've got families and they don't. Sit. I'm I'm extremely lucky that I do something I absolutely adore. I get to hang hang out with my idols. I'm looking at Dave um, and get paid for it as well but um, what would I like to do one day maybe host match of the day that'd be quite nice maybe that Um, football focus saying a lot of Beeb stuff aren't I after I slaughtered Barbara Slate at those awards (laughs) I don't think that's going to happen
<laughs> well, listen, Andy, I'll, I'll let you go because you've got to rehearse your ad libs for tonight. So, <laughs> but thanks a lot for being on the podcast, and uh, good luck for the rest of the season here on Eurosport, the home nations, and indeed Germany. And Merry Christmas. Yes, and I'll see you at our usual hotel in Germany. Yeah, then. and just plug your show again. Tell us when it's Thank on. Thank you. It's very kind. Uh, it's uh, Monday to Thursday on Talksport from 10 p.m. Cheers, Andy. Thanks, Dave. Sports Social Podcast Network.